Hello, and welcome to Obsessive Compulsive Gaming. This will be the first extra or bonus episode that we do in this series, in which we won't continue to follow the direct progression of history, but will instead stop and take a deeper look at something very important that can illuminate things more broadly as we move forward. In this case, we'll be discussing the technology behind video games that make them possible. We'll start by understanding the cathode ray tube and how it produces a television image. Then we'll take a look at the first home game console, the Odyssey, to understand how a piece of video game hardware can control a CRT in order to generate graphics and play games. Let's get started. As was mentioned in the first episode of the history series, the cathode ray tube was invented by a German scientist named Carl Ferdinand Braun in 1897, who originally named the device after himself, calling it the Braun tube. That same year, it was put to use by a scientist named J.J. Thompson when he used the cathode ray tube for an experiment that resulted in his discovery of the electron and redefined scientific understanding of the building blocks of matter. The device itself consists of a tube made of glass that is sealed and then has all internal air pumped out, creating a vacuum within the tube. The tube has a narrow neck at the far end where a beam is generated, but it opens much wider at the other end, which is where the actual screen is located. In that narrow neck of the tube, there are two primary components that make the cathode ray possible, an anode and a cathode. A cathode is a material, usually a type of metal, that is negatively charged, meaning it has an excess of negatively oriented electrons, while an anode is a positively charged material, also commonly a metal, indicating the opposite abundance of positively oriented protons. Due to the known properties of magnetism, knowing that like charges repel one another and oppositely charged items attract one another, the placement of a cathode and an anode in a vacuum will produce a flight of negatively charged electrons from the cathode towards the positively charged anode when electricity is supplied to both. This in and of itself will generate the crudest and simplest cathode ray. The anode in a cathode ray tube is open and hollow like a ring, allowing for the attraction of electrons by its presence, but the ability and likelihood for most of them to pass right through the wide opening in the anode. This stream of electrons that is drawn towards but passes through the anode produces the beam, or the cathode ray, which emanates from the negatively charged cathode at the very base of the neck of the tube. In its earliest and simplest incarnation, this beam is used for scientific experiments, such as J.J. Thompson's that discovered the electron and overturned nearly a century of accepted theory about the composition of atoms. However, further additions to the simple cathode ray tube would be needed to give it wider purposes. For one, the electron beam is only visible on the wider end of the tube uses the display if that display is phosphorescent. This means that the display end of the tube must be coated in a thin film of a phosphorus material. Phosphorus materials are elements that produce visible light from means other than heat, leading to them being referred to usually as cold light. In the case of a CRT, the source of the energy that strikes the phosphorescent material would be the electron beam generated by the cathode and pulled towards the screen by its magnetic attraction to the anode. This specific phenomena 
is called cathodoluminescence. The phosphorescent material used would depend on what kind of or color image was intended to be activated on the display. One of the most common early phosphors used would be zinc sulfide, which when struck produces a green image on the screen. By the 1920s and 1930s, this kind of simpler beam technology would be implemented in the first of its kind oscilloscope products that began to be useful to the scientific, electrical, and engineering communities of that day. However, further additions would need to be made to the cathode ray tube we've described so far. Most importantly, there's no way to control the cathode ray that we've constructed. Also, an unconstrained cathode ray will produce a rather wide and fuzzy image on screen, similar to the act of shining a small flashlight against the glass, rather than producing a more precise dot that can be useful for tracing onto the screen. To deal with the clarity issue, two more anodes are added into the neck of the tube early in the cathode beam's transmission. The first is the focusing anode, which has a lower positive charge than the initial anode that attracted the electrons in the first place. With a lower positive charge, the electrons making up the beam are slowed down in their acceleration forward a bit and left to collapse into a narrower point. This narrower, more focused point then moves towards the accelerating anode, which attracts and projects this more refined output towards the screen. These two anodes are commonly referred to as a lens for focusing and projecting the initially generated cathode ray. While this produces a nice, clear, and precise image onto the screen, there is still no control over the movement of the beam, which leaves it fairly useless. This is where a new invention is added to the device. As the now narrow beam passes down the tube, it's acted upon by two more sets of magnetic interfaces known as magnetic deflection plates, which are broken up into a pair of X plates and a pair of Y plates. Each pair has a positive and negative end facing each other from opposite sides of the tube. The Y plates sit on the top and bottom of the tube, controlling the beam's Y axis before it hits the screen, while the X plates sit on the left and right sides of the tube, affecting the X axis of the beam upon the screen. Different charges applied to each magnetic side of the X and Y plates will act upon the beam and bend it in a different direction on its way to the screen. By controlling both the X and Y plates, the beam can be controlled to essentially map out an image on the display, similar to how one might plot points on a graph. This could be used to trace directly to the screen, the way that one might think of a seismograph printing seismic movements in the earth to paper outputs, except in this case, instead of the drawing lens being controlled by the movement of the earth's crust, the lens in an oscilloscope is controlled by the application of electrical charges to the lens and the deflection plates, which are under human control. It was this kind of oscilloscope technology that produced one of the earliest examples of video games that we examined in episode two of the history series, William Higginbotham's Tennis for Two. Doing this meant that Higginbotham put a computer in control of modulating the electron beam of an oscilloscope rather than having a human in control as one might do when tuning an oscilloscope by hand for other purposes. Thanks to the incomparably faster ability for a computer to calculate and then manipulate the electric pulses it sent to the oscilloscope, this made for a graphical display that had not been seen up until that point, at least not for interactive purposes. Higginbotham's inspiration for the concept did come from demonstrations packaged with the machine that could display the beam tracing a bouncing ball on the screen. What was most unique here was that Higginbotham added human interactivity into the mix. 
While the computer had control over the oscilloscope, the human players had control over the computer, and in turn told it what electrical pulses to send based on their actions controlling the game program via the control device that Higginbotham had built. Of course, as we discussed in episode 2 of the History series, Tennis for Two was not the first game with graphical representation. Alexander Douglas's OXO, more commonly known as Knots and Crosses, was programmed by him on the EDSAC computer at Cambridge University. The EDSAC computer featured three small CRT displays alongside one of the first forms of stored memory. One of these three CRT screens was dedicated to displaying the contents of the memory storage so that it could be verified as accurate to what was being inputted. Douglas's program took clever advantage of this memory display to arrange the four intersecting lines to create the board for tic-tac-toe. This game was arranged within a grid of dots that extended 35 by 16 dots. These dots could be considered pixels as they are the base element of the display as a whole, although the term pixel can have other meanings in different disciplines and different contexts. For our purposes here, the term can fit, and this makes 35 by 16 the first resolution a game was ever featured in. Of course, in these early days, the CRT was not known for its ability to display video games or computer programs, but was instead best known for its primary use, to broadcast and watch television. To do this, the CRT would need a few more pieces to draw the kind of moving pictures onto the screen to recreate a television broadcast. In order to render a picture onto the screen, the electron gun would be directed by the X and Y magnets to begin firing at the screen from the top leftmost point of the screen, sweeping to the right, then hitting a point where a signal is delivered to swing the beam back to the left to start again and drawing the next line. This pattern of actions repeats down the screen until the electron gun receives a signal to stop firing on the screen when it reaches the end of the bottommost line and to return to the top leftmost spot again to begin the process all over. The points at which the electron gun is commanded to stop drawing and move either to the next horizontal line or to return to the top of its vertical field are known as the horizontal and vertical blanking intervals. These are periods during which an electrical signal is being sent, same as during the drawing process, but the signal received in those precious few moments do not contain data that can be projected to the screen. Instead, these intervals can be put to use for other things, which we will see at various points in time going forward. Now, this period of drawing lines from the top to the bottom of the screen occurs incomprehensibly fast. The standards determining how many lines are drawn and how quickly were initially devised separately and incompatibly from each other in the very early days of black and white television, as each inventor that created an electronic television device wound up with different outputs. These standards were not fully settled upon until the 1950s and would still differ between different parts of the world. The standard that was eventually settled upon in North America was the National Television System Committee Standard, or NTSC for short. This standard was initially devised by the FCC in the United States and issued in March of 1941. The standard called for televisions to produce 525 scan lines and to visualize 30 images in a single second. The 525 lines would be drawn in two parts. First, the electron beam would draw 262.5 lines by skipping every other line on the screen. 
Then it would return to the top and draw across only the remaining 262.5 lines that it had missed on its first pass. A complete double pass down the screen drawing in all 525 lines would be considered a single frame, and the NTSC standard called for televisions to be able to produce 30 of these frames in one second, meaning that the electron beam would be manipulated to draw 15,750 lines on the screen in just one single second. It's the rapid pace at which each frame is drawn one after the other within such a short period of time that creates the technical illusion of motion when viewing video. The human brain is not able to process and comprehend the frames individually at the speed they're presented, and ends up rendering the images together in the mind as one continuous motion. It was like humans had invented an electric flipbook that could turn its pages at almost the speed of light. This initial NTSC standard would be the one that would make the very first television broadcast in 1941. However, both history and the advance of technology would make this initial standard a very short-lived one. Being devised on the eve of America's entry into World War II, this standard was effectively put on hold along with the production of all consumer televisions in 1942 to redirect production towards the war effort. At the time the war ended in 1945, and the world was picking up the pieces, a newer standard was needed to begin implementing the next technological revolution in broadcasting and displaying television images. Color. The race to produce color television kicked off nearly as soon as black and white television had been created. Different and competing designs traded back and forth up until the early 1950s when a standard was set. The new color television sets added three things over the previous black and white sets. Firstly, the phosphor coating on the front of the screen would now contain three different color phosphors arranged next to one another. A green, a red, and a blue. These are the patterns of color dots one can see when looking at an older television up close. Second, the color TV featured three electron guns in the neck of the tube instead of just one. Each beam would be in charge of striking a different color. The third piece would be the thing that stood in between the first two elements and made it all work. This was something called a shadow mask. Very simply, a shadow mask is a sheet of metal that sits just behind the screen, standing between it and the electron beams. The shadow mask is perforated top to bottom by very tiny holes through which the electron beams can pass. The trick is that the three electron beams in the neck of the tube are all positioned at different angles from one another and relative to the shadow mask. The positioning of the shadow mask relative to the electron guns means that each beam can only strike and pass through the shadow mask at its correct angle. This keeps each of the beams from crossing over and hitting a colored phosphor it was not assigned to. With three beams now sweeping the screen from top to bottom, hitting each respective color, it is now possible to project a color image onto the screen, with the beams not just producing white against the black screen, but instead producing a red, green, or blue illumination, or a combination of two of those to produce other colors. While the color NTSC standard would be finalized and approved by the American FCC in 1953, it would not be the only television standard in the world anymore. With the post-war proliferation in televisions, there were two other international standards. The PAL standard, used across Europe and most of Asia, Africa, and certain South American countries, and the CCAM standard, which was utilized mainly in France, French colonies in Africa, and the Soviet Union. 
While NTSC ended up being adopted primarily in North America, the northernmost states in South America and in Japan. The difference between NTSC and its major worldwide sibling, PAL, was that the PAL standard had televisions draw 625 lines to the screen and do so only 50 times in a second, producing a standard frame rate of 25 frames per second. This produced a somewhat higher resolution image in the PAL standard, but at a slightly lower frame rate. This difference between the two major television standards would become more noticeable down the road as the gaming industry blossomed worldwide. For now, we'll be focusing on the technology behind NTSC televisions, the ones that gave birth to video games in the United States. So with that, let's hop over to Ralph Baer. As the third episode laid out, Ralph Baer was a television engineer and amongst the first certified wave of them after World War II. Thus, it makes a great deal of sense that his primary technical inspiration for building the first of his TV game unit boxes would come from the equipment he was intimately familiar with. In that era of analog television, engineers and repair personnel used a number of different electronic devices to test, calibrate, and align the image on a TV screen to make sure it was properly synced with the picture source. One of these types of equipment was known as an alignment generator. Bayer drew his idea for projecting interactive objects onto the screen from these kinds of devices, as they were already made for the purpose of outputting electrical signals to a television set to draw artificial patterns with the electron gun, such as different shapes, or a grid of lines, or an array of dots. This would be to make sure that all areas of the screen were correctly outputting in alignment with each other and with the source image. If the image appeared to waver, cut out, or was misaligned to its position on the screen, it would indicate that an adjustment of the television's internal components was in order, to make sure they were properly set to match the electronic signal they were receiving. Bayer smartly figured that if you could take the same circuitry used to direct a television beam onto the screen in the shape of a dot or a line, and put the output and the location of these lines in the hands of a television user, you would have the building blocks of interactivity for games. In fact, it was just such a piece of test equipment, a Heathkit IG62 alignment generator, that Bayer cannibalized in part to make up the circuitry for the first TV game unit number one. Today, that very same piece of equipment sits alongside the brown box prototypes at the Smithsonian for the role that it played in inspiring the design of the first video game console. The final product that was the Odyssey console featured a number of smaller sub-motherboards attached and plugged into the main motherboard, which also included the game card slot, the power connection to the battery socket, and the output pins for the controllers. Four of the smaller sub-boards were adapted from the concept of the alignment generator and called Spot Generator Boards. Because their dedicated purpose was to signal to the television set to generate an object on the screen. Each board was dedicated to generating a specific object for gameplay. One generated the dot for player one, another the dot for player two, a third for the dot that would be the game ball, and a fourth to render a line on screen to use as a wall. However, these boards only generated their given object. The positioning, control, and logic behind what they would do was up to other circuitry. The two sub-boards responsible for this were a flip-flop board and a gate matrix, or a logic board. The gate matrix was a sub-board composed of circuits known as logic gates. A logic gate is a kind of circuit arrangement using, in this case, diodes and transistors to route and direct the flow of electricity from an input to different outputs depending on the combination of those inputs. For example, 
a voltage on both input A and input B will cause the flow of electricity to pass through only the gate that can be surpassed by their combined voltage, while being held up at the other two gates, while no voltage on either input would result in a flow emitting from a different gate, and the input of only one of the two inputs would be enough voltage to pass through a third gate, but not the other two. This conditional direction of electric voltage allows for different values to be outputted depending on what is input to the circuit, and allowing for different actions to result from inputs into a game. In the case of Odyssey games, this would mean that changing the direction a ball moves or the action it takes on contact with another object, such as bouncing back or simply disappearing. The game logic also functioned with the use of two sub-boards known as flip-flop boards. A flip-flop is another type of circuit used in arranging electronic logic. This is a unique type of circuit that is capable of retaining the state it is put into from a prior voltage until another voltage comes along and resets its state. This allows for the circuit to store exactly one binary piece of information, on or off, yes or no as it were. The two flip-flop boards in the Odyssey were used to remember two different types of game states. One remembering the type of reaction the ball will have to being hit, that is, which way it will move as these are different in different games, and what other game objects interact with the ball in certain ways, such as which ones make it disappear and which ones make it ricochet. These remembered states of play would be generated by the aforementioned logic gates and will be stored until the flip-flop boards were reset and acted upon for a different game. The arrangement of the flow of electric voltage through these logic gates, spot generators, and flip-flop boards would all be determined by the addition of the game cards. The overall circuit that was the Odyssey system was incomplete until a game card was inserted into the system. In fact, the machine does not have a power button because the act of inserting the game card is in fact the method of completing the circuit to allow for the flow of electricity through the system. The game cards are what are known as jumpers. Jumpers are conductive materials used to either close or open a circuit, so the arrangement of different jumper pins on the game cards would complete the electrical circuit of the Odyssey at different points to direct the flow of electricity through different avenues, resulting in different outputs to the logic gates, the spot generator, and the flip-flop boards. This is how the game cards turn on the different types of games they entail, even though they contain no game code or any readable material. The different types of game behavior would be paired with the written instructions for players to follow along with the game logic to achieve different activities, such as ping pong, tag, or shooting galleries. It's the layout of the logic gate circuits within the machine that is the core of any sort of programming that Bayer and his associates at Magnavox did to make the games. Rather than writing code to be executed by a computer chip capable of reading instructions, they coded their instructions directly into their arrangement of the circuits themselves. The remaining boards in the Odyssey were dedicated to outputting the results of the game-producing circuitry to a television set and controlling how the television displayed the picture. Doing this essentially required duplicating the way television was broadcast and received at that time. Except in this case, the television program being broadcast was the game generated by the Odyssey's other hardware subboards. Two more subboards were dedicated to generating the signal to the television to draw horizontally, while the other would indicate when to return vertically to the top of the screen. These are the kinds of signals included in television broadcasts to synchronize the picture being transmitted for display with the electron gun in the television in order to display properly. 
These two boards were labeled the horizontal sink generator and the vertical sink generator. Finally, there was a sub-board labeled as the summer board. It was the job of this board to combine all of the information generated by the previous boards and synthesize it into one signal that could be broadcast to the television set. The last pieces of dedicated hardware were locked underneath a metal box on the main motherboard. This was a common practice in that era of electronics to keep them from interfering with the signal of other devices around it. These would be the RF, or radio frequency generating equipment. These last pieces of the puzzle take the combined singular signal generated by the summer board and transmit it over a standard and recognizable radio frequency that televisions can pick up as if it was being broadcast over either channel 3 or channel 4, depending on which switch is selected on the system. In this, the Odyssey was essentially emulating a small television broadcast station, except one that was generating a digital image rather than one of analog video. Of course, this would just be a digital picture box if not for one crucial piece of hardware that is not inside of the Odyssey, the controller. With an instrument for a person to control an electrical device, the Odyssey goes from being a more intricate pattern generator to being an actual video game. As mentioned in the internals of the system, there were two ports for connecting the controllers via pins on the backside of the motherboard. There was also a third slot for peripherals such as the light gun rifle, which we'll get to in a moment. Since the console we've described essentially just flows electricity in different ways through different avenues to project and move objects on the screen, this means that player inputs come through controlling and manipulating these electric voltages. But as we know, these games are not binary affairs. A player doesn't simply hit a button that inputs a singular value. Even the games on the Odyssey are more complex than that. So what does the controller do that allows for more nuanced input from players? The component that makes the controller possible is known as a potentiometer. This is an electronic component that is able to vary the amount of electricity it passes along by moving or altering the position of a resistor within the piece itself, thus allowing for it to output a range of different values, from fully blocking the output of electricity with the resistor dialed all the way to one side, to fully unleashing the maximum voltage that it can pass by removing the resistor in the complete opposite direction. This allows for a range of inputs on a certain scale to be input, rather than just a binary input. The easiest example to imagine would be to imagine the lighting in a room of your home that instead of a simple on or off switch has a slider or a dial to adjust from complete darkness to full brightness and anywhere in between. This adjustment is controlled by a potentiometer. In the case of the Odyssey, the controller has three potentiometers, each corresponding with one of the knobs on the controller. One knob controls the input that moves a player's dot horizontally, so along its x-axis as it's drawn to the screen, while the opposite knob controls the vertical or y-axis movement when the dot is drawn to the screen. The combination of both of these values allow for the electronics in the Odyssey to plot and generate the character dots in the two-dimensional coordinates available on the TV screen. Of course, there is that third dial, which Bayer added, that also controls the pitch or spin on the ball when a player hits it. This too has the third potentiometer to control the degree to which that spin movement is controlled by the player. Finally, the controller does feature a reset button, but this button does not power the hardware on or off like later reset buttons do. Instead, it sends an electronic signal to the Odyssey to reset the game elements, such as the position of the dots on screen. This was used for situations like when the ball would be sent off screen and needed to be returned to the playfield again. 
Of course, the Odyssey is not just known for being the first home console and featuring the first games and controllers, but also the first peripheral for a console as well, in the form of the light gun rifle used for the shooting gallery games. The key to all light gun shooting games, both on a console like the Odyssey and in the mechanical arcade games that drew its inspiration from, was a component known as a photodiode. This would be an electrical component that is capable of converting light into electricity when the photons from light strike and excite electrons in the sensitive material, usually silicon. In the old-fashioned electromechanical arcade games that put shooting galleries into arcades, it would be the targets that would be fitted with a photodiode, and the gun that the player fired would emit a strong light beam at it. If the photodiode would become energized, it would trigger the action for that target in the game to indicate that it had been hit, such as falling over. However, the formula for playing a light gun game on a television actually worked exactly backwards. In this case, the photodiode would be put inside the gun, which would be used to detect light coming in rather than pushing out light. It was the TV that would produce the lights to show to the gun. Taking advantage of the incredible speed with which a CRT television draws frames every single second, the shooting game is programmed to blank the entire screen for one frame, produce a light spot over the target in another frame, and then go back to a full blackout in the following frame on the screen. This all happens so fast that it is practically unnoticeable to the human player, but the light that is generated in that middle frame is captured and registered by the photodiode in the light gun if the player has pointed the gun accurately at that point on the screen. If it detects a hit, the game program will respond to this input and register the output of shooting the target, such as making the dot disappear. If it does not detect a hit, this may either trigger a different response from the game, or the game program will simply proceed to operate until it is hit. This setup for light guns in light gun games would set the standard for the rest of the century. The picture we have assembled thus far from this episode on the CRT and the game console lay the foundation for our understanding of technologies to come. We will return to the topic periodically throughout the series as new technologies come into play and build on old ones and transform what we know about how video games work. At the end of this episode, I'd like to stop for a moment and reiterate a point I made at the beginning. Since this show is about history, it contains the fruits of a great deal of research. The collecting and telling of history is and always has been a collaborative project. So while I certainly acknowledge, embrace, and enjoy my job in gathering, organizing, distilling, and presenting this history, I would be sorely remiss if I did not highlight the deep digging and research that is done by a nascent category of video game archivists, researchers, preservationists, and historians. Many of the events described here took place before I was alive, and sadly some of the people involved are no longer living to tell their stories. You and I are only able to know these stories and understand where this history comes from, thanks to the usually thankless efforts of people that recognize that time is fleeting, that metals corrode, and that papers are so often lost, and that we must do what we can to capture the past as best as we can in order to learn from it for the future. The show notes to this and every show will contain links to the sources behind my research for these episodes. I highly encourage you to take a look, to dive deeper into the topic if it interests you, and to show your appreciation and support to the modern-day historians who dig through newspaper archives, interview long-forgotten programmers, and save aging hardware from oblivion. 
In the modern 21st century gaming landscape, as digital forms of distribution and storage overtake the physical, it becomes more important going forward than it ever has in the past that more and more people understand that each game they download is a possible historical artifact in the making. Preservation and longevity should be given greater priority amongst the consumer public and the companies and individuals responsible for creating this content. The Film Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to the preservation of film, estimates that 50% of American films made before 1950 are lost forever, and that over 90% of films made before 1929 suffer the same fate. It would be a historical and cultural tragedy to let another medium of human expression fall into such a desperate state. I hope I can make the case to you, in this series, to care more about history and preservation in this regard. I hope this look into gaming history has been enjoyable and informational. Thank you for listening.